Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Bob Levy, the author of The Dirty Dozen, chairman of the Cato Institute, noted authority on the Constitution, and the lawyer who successfully argued the Heller Second Amendment case in front of the Supreme Court. You certainly, by what you just said, uh, it really begs for me to again say that you are the author of an incredible book called The Dirty Dozen, The Twelve Worst Supreme Court Decisions of All Time, Uh, decisions that expanded uh, the power of government versus the rights of the individual. And of course, case number one being the Dred Scott decision and goes along and and you discuss a lot of the uh, laws, rules, regulations of FDR during the New Deal and things like that, which are blatantly unconstitutional, many of which we're still suffering with with today. And and I would propose that that you probably have more than enough uh, fodder or information to write a sequel the, the second dirty dozen since the first run was uh, completed because a lot of the cases that we uh, hear about now are so, it just boggles your mind to the, how could justices in a court system make decisions like that when they have the written words of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as their guide? How does that happen? And, and what do we do to, to protect ourselves? Well, what we do is we elect the president and the senators who will nominate and confirm judges who respect the text of the Constitution, who treat uh, the document as if its words mean something and not as if the Constitution is simply a loophole that we can throw away and act as though the text didn't exist. And I, I will say this, that despite having misgivings about some aspects of the Trump administration. Uh, The one area where I think they have done a superb job is in the nomination and confirmation uh, of federal judges. Uh, They've uh, nominated excellent federal judges across the board, not just the trial courts, but the appellate courts, and of course, three Supreme Court um, nominations. And that uh, will be a lasting goal, one that President Trump can take great pride in. You know, uh, it's funny that I often say that I'm the most dangerous type of constitutional expert because I am a textualist, which means that I read the written words of the Constitution and consider them to be true law. I believe that uh, Justice Scalia was a textualist. 
and I know you you also believe in the written word of the of the Constitution. Yes, Justice Scalia, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, uh, and I think the the most recent nominees, uh, Gorsuch, uh, Kavanaugh, and uh, and Barrett, they are textualists. Justice Roberts uh, does uh, pay attention to the text. I'd say he's less of a pristine textualist than the other than the others. Uh, of course, we do have three liberals on the court, and they uh, believe not in textualism, but in this so-called living constitution. So what does it mean to be a textualist? It means that what governs uh, constitutional interpretations are the words that are actually in the document. Uh, and by words, I don't mean the intent of the framers. So Scalia said, for example, it's the law that governs and not the intent of the lawmakers. So even though uh, the media misrepresents uh, conservatism as favoring original intent, it's not quite original intent. It's original meaning, the meaning of the words, not the intent of the framers. And textualism also is not what the media has characterized as strict construction. And again, Scalia uh, distinguished the two. He said, uh, the Constitution should not be interpreted strictly. It should not be interpreted loosely. It should be interpreted reasonably so that the words contain all that they meant at the time of uh, ratification. It doesn't mean, of course, that we lock ourselves into a 1789 interpretation. Uh, no one denies, no textualist that I know of, denies that the First Amendment covers the Internet. Uh, the framers could never have imagined anything like the Internet. So it's always permissible to examine the trajectory of the words and apply them to new and evolving circumstances. But what isn't permissible is to treat the words as if they meant something quite different than they clearly meant at the time of ratification. Well, that's what you get with a living constitution, of course, yes, that, that they are just saying that I feel this is what it should be. And even though I ain't written that way, that's the way I'm going to rule. Right. Uh, that really is, is kind of a bad, I mean, that's, that's a concept that we should all be very, very fearful of. I don't see how a justice who, who really understands the law would, would come across that with that kind of decision. I mean, what, I mean, you and I both know, and many of our listeners know that if you, if you rent uh, if you rent an apartment and you sign a lease, there are words in that lease, and those words mean something. Uh, regardless of intent, the words are there on a piece of paper, and you have signed a contract. In the middle of your lease, you're, the owner of the apartment can't come to you and say, I've decided to double your rent because I want to. Uh, you just can't go ahead and do things like that because the rule of law is meaningless. Well, some Supreme Court justices believe you can do things like that. And uh, those who believe in the living constitution, they want the constitution to be this malleable document that you can mold and change to suit uh, their sense of social justice and their evolving technological and social and cultural needs. Uh, but the textualist response to that is, look, if you need structural flexibility, that, that's why the, the, the framers were smart enough to provide an amendment process. So Article 5 of the Constitution specifies how it can be amended. And indeed, we've amended the Constitution uh, 27 times uh, since it uh, was uh, originally uh, ratified. So if you, if you want to change it, to adopt it, to uh, adapt it to uh, changing uh, cultural, technological uh, circumstances, then 
do so by amendment, don't do so by pretending that the words don't exist or that they mean something different than the framers um, interpreted them. So, Bob Levy, what we have been talking about now kind of, kind of leads us back to uh, that debate between the Electoral College and the popular vote, because isn't there a, a, a national popular vote interstate compact that uh, has, is now either been accomplished, been written, been done, or something that has been proposed? What yeah. is that, and how does that uh, fit in with the discussion that we're having? Well, a group of activists came up with a um, popular voting scheme that they think they could implement without a constitutional amendment. So the Electoral College, as you know, is provided for in the Constitution, and one would think if you want to get rid of the Electoral College and substitute a national popular vote, you need to amend the Constitution. But the way this national popular vote interstate compact works is as follows. Assume that, that a state enacts a law that gives all of its electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national popular vote, regardless of the outcome within the state itself. And then assume further that that state law says that the law won't be effective unless enough other states pass the same law to yield a total of at least 270 electoral votes, which is the number needed to win the presidency. So that scheme would be perfectly valid under Article Two of the Constitution, which gives the state legislatures uh, the authority to determine how they're going to select the presidential electors. And that scheme would force a majority of electoral votes to be cast for the winner of the national popular vote, all done without amending the Constitution. So far, uh, 15 states and DC with 196 electoral votes have adopted that statute. So in order to, for it to become effective, there would be 74 electoral votes uh, yet to go. Well, how does that uh, pass constitutional muster? I don't believe it does. Uh, the Constitution imposes at least two major roadblocks. The first one is the Compacts Clause, Article 1, Section 10, which says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter, any, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. Well, that's clearly what this is. It's an interstate compact. So that clause mandates congressional consent. Now, maybe it doesn't apply to every single interstate compact. There are lots of procedural things that are trivial that the states can agree to among themselves. But at least those compacts that compromise this dual state-federal scheme that was envisioned by the framers would indeed require congressional consent. And if it did, the senators from the states that didn't sign the compact would likely withhold consent, especially, again, Dr. Dan, as you pointed out, the senators from the less populated states that would have significantly diminished electoral clout if this compact were to become uh, operative. So I doubt very much that it would pass uh, constitutional muster given the compacts clause. 
So again, uh, you, what it really comes down to is the Constitution is, to me, it's just an incredible document. I mean, the founders and the, the framers of the Constitution, they they understood so many things when they wrote that document. They may not have had electricity, but I, I don't think you need electricity to come up with the concepts of that really protected and secured nat- natural law rights, individual freedoms, limited power of a central government, and that checks and balances and balance the power. What a fantastic document they created without so much as a typewriter. I think it's unbelievable. Done by geniuses. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and hopefully not undone by idiots. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say, but when I look at the Bill of Rights and I see that that's what keep, that's what makes me free. Now, the, the those amendments, the 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 natural law rights and the due process, which is so critical that that's what separates us from from Nazi Germany is you're you're not supposed to have someone you know, you know, come up at 2 a.m. and break in your door and haul you off into a prison uh, somewhere where no one knows where you are. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to do things like that in this country. And that's what due process is, all the habeas corpus and due process. Then, of course, the First and Second Amendments and all of that stuff. And uh, they were geniuses, but they didn't they didn't even know about uh, about all of the terrible things that would happen 200 and years down the road, and yet they were able to foresee them. Yeah, and they did provide, as I mentioned, an amendment process. So uh, they didn't anticipate that they would cover every single contingency of a rapidly evolving nation. But they were smart enough to say, if you don't like what we've done, there is a means by which you can change what we've done. But that means does not include simply rewriting the Constitution and acting as if uh, the words that are in the document are superfluous. So do you have any final thoughts on this entire issue from a constitutional point of view? What, what are your, your thoughts and your advice to, to us, to me, to our listeners about obviously the contentious issues that are going on today re- uh, revolving around our election the risks that we are facing for our freedoms. Yeah. What I are your thoughts? I certainly have thoughts about this issue of the electoral vote versus the popular vote. Um, Article 2 gives the states broad authority to decide how the electoral votes um, are to be, the electors are to be appointed, and, and also how the electoral votes are divided among the uh, candidates. Uh, bear in mind that the 48 states, the candidate who gets most votes in the state wins all of the state's electoral votes. The Constitution doesn't require that rule. Maine and Nebraska, they do it differently. They have two electoral votes that go to the statewide winner, and then the rest of their electoral votes are done district by district. Whichever candidate wins in a particular district, he gets that district's electoral vote. So that's much closer to proportional voting instead of winner-take-all. Winner-take-all is considered to be um, necessary uh, uh, incompatible, rather, with the concept of one man, one vote. Uh, but I think this this uh, concept of one man, one vote is is not uh, 
dictated by the Constitution. And as I mentioned earlier, there are many areas that are covered by the Constitution, which are resolved on some basis other than uh, one man, one vote. What happens with a, a winner-take-all system, however, is that candidates ignore states when they have very little chance of winning the state's popular vote, even if there are districts within the state that favor the candidate. But you don't have to go to a pure popular vote system to fix that. And I like the Maine and Nebraska alternative. Uh, it awards these electoral votes district by district, and it would encourage the candidates uh, to campaign even in those states they might have ignored because they're so far behind in the statewide polling. And it doesn't go so far as pure popular voting. And the reason we shouldn't go so far that far is that uh, it promotes sectionalism if we have purely popular votes. Candidates pay attention only to the areas where there's a high density of voters. So cities would be favored over rural areas, large states, as you pointed out earlier, would be favored over the smaller uh, states. Pure popular voting uh, is, I think, um, ill-advised, and we should not do it. But if we wanted to revise the electoral system, uh, we could uh, adopt this uh, Maine and Nebraska system. Now, actually, the states can do that on their own without a constitutional amendment, because Article 2 leaves it up to the states. Or we could have a constitutional amendment that incorporated uh, such a system. I, I personally would like to see that uh, come to pass. I don't think it's going to happen, but I would like to see it happen. Well, again, you've, you've presented a really a cogent argument for the Electoral College because it really does. It's just part of that whole concept of balancing power among the big and the small. And when you look at the, uh, the state by state or county by county uh, votes, and you can see that there are just concentrations in certain areas. And if you do the math, it's easy to figure out that if, it, if there was a national popular vote for president, uh, you, the candidates would, uh, would campaign in about six or seven states. And that's probably all they need to uh, campaign in in order to win the popular vote. Uh, then that would just leave millions and millions of people you would say, well, they're not actually disenfranchised, but they are philosophically to themselves disenfranchised. And so when you have people, large groups of people who say, why bother? I'm not part of this. But yet they live in the country. That's not a, rep that's not a recipe for a united country. Yeah. And this national popular vote interstate compact would, in fact, disenfranchise voters because it happens after the election. The election occurs, the voters vote, and then the state legislature says, ah, the voters in our state did not vote the same way as the national popular vote. And therefore we are going to annul the voters in our state and have them switch to voting for the winner of the national popular vote. That is disenfranchisement, pure and simple. And I think that's another reason why that compact will not hold up against court uh, scrutiny. Well, Bob Levy, 
author of The Dirty Dozen, and those of you who haven't read that book, I certainly hope you do. And, and Bob, I'm just telling you, you need to write a sequel, The Second Dirty Dozen, because there have been enough cases to fill that book, I'm sure. Um, in any event, as always, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you as a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. It's great to be with you, Dr. Dan. I enjoyed it. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. I get joy in everything. Everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning.